My name is Luke Butler and you're listening to the Back of House podcast. In this episode, Mike and I speak with Declan Lee, who is one of the owners of the incredibly popular Gelato Messina business. Declan's role at Messina is heavily marketing focused and he's responsible for coming up with a lot of the creative ideas relating to their product, their collaborations and their messaging. He sheds some light on how the business came to be, their approach to marketing and the future of the business as a whole. His story is really interesting and there's a lot to like about the way that they do things. However, I think their strategy or admitted lack thereof will really surprise a lot of people. Anyway, that's enough from me. Here is our conversation with Declan Lee. So Declan, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So, um, I don't know if you know, but I live not too far away from here. Yesterday, uh, I was at the park, Tarawal Park, with my 10-month-old near the playset, and I heard a mother say to her two kids, um, that's it, we're not going to Messina. You guys have been (laughs) behaving horrendously. And obviously, knowing that we're having this conversation today, um, it really made me think, yeah, when you came into this, did you realize or think that your product would be shaping the behavior of future generations of course we didn't no of course not i mean we didn't really plan on anything i mean i i come from a a music background and i fell into this in in many ways um we just came into it with this kind of idea that we would we didn't even sit and plan it we just had this idea that we would Nick has always concentrated on making the very, very best product he could make. I came from a background that had nothing to do with ice cream, but applied the knowledge that I had in my kind of marketing background with music to this business. And we just had a lot of fun with it. We just tried to build a brand without thinking we're building a brand. We just, that was the tact that we took and it seemed to work. Um, I think... I, I did, I must say, I did from the early stages want to try and make the word Messina part of the vernacular in terms of I wanted people to say we're going to Messina yeah. for Messina rather than saying we're going for gelato. Mm-hmm. And I think we kind of achieved that. So you do kids ever factor into your marketing strategy? Because they're, they're obviously, well, maybe my impression of it would be that they're a byproduct of the success of marketing to adults. Yeah, no, we never really set out. We always set out to make a product and ex- an experience that was inviting to all people across the board. Um, and it just so happens that when you get the adults involved, mm the kids kind of come along for the ride and it's ice cream. I mean, how adult can it get, you know? So we we actually found, we're actually at a point in our business where there's a lot of the kids that were coming in with their parents as toddlers that are now coming in by themselves. Yeah. And we've ruined the ice cream gelato experience for them forever because they're very picky about what they they get now. Yeah. And they won't settle for inferior product, which is great for us. Um, and great for our brand because mm. they they put you into this kind of um, upper echelon of you know to mm. glory. So it's good. Do you find there's you, you may not have done research on this, but is there a point at which they start to understand? It's kind of like The Simpsons. You know how The Simpsons have jokes that kids are never going to get and adults can enjoy watching. I mean, you look at some of the names of some of your brands, for example. I think I've said Hodor, yeah. um, Robert Brownie Jr. There's there's names that kids. 
yeah. just don't relate to. Well, you don't need to get it, right? Mm. You know, it can just be funny or it can just mean nothing. I mean, we've named flavours that have no meaning at all. They just have some meaning to us. But you don't need to understand it. But you're right, there are some things that uh, go over the head of little kids. There's some things that go over the head of a lot of people. And then at some stage, they get it. But in the end, it's just... There's nothing too deep and meaningful about it. It's mm. just funny, you know? Um, so I think a lot of those kids do you know we try and we've always tried to do stuff that had some meaning with popular culture or sometimes it has nothing to do with popular culture it might have to do with you know we've, we've done flavors that to do with the um politicians and just yeah. stuff that was happening in the day yeah and is that how you think that the brands accelerated by adopting that approach i, I, I think how do i explain this I think we tried to <coughs> tried to make the conversation with our customers <coughs> appealing and feel like it's very. Um, I'm trying to work out how to articulate this. I've always tried to make the conversation very one-on-one with our customers, so there was always a point at which you could relate to us, um, and I think I think that is why, you know. It, everyone could have a conversation with it well it didn't feel like a brand talking to the customer it felt like a two-way conversation on that the rate at which you can pick up on current conversations is what i'm thinking about so the big brand comes along with a strategy uh, and mate, says takes we're going to do these and then yeah. of course by that stage the government's changed or yeah know, there's a bio I mean, lecture that hasn't the, happened or, the beauty of what we do is not it's we make everything we talk about it all the time but we make everything from scratch right if you go into our factory you'll see we bake all of our you know croissants the biscuits the everything right that goes into our gelato the fact that we can be so nimble means that we can also be nimble at the sort of marketing point of view so if something happens today I remember when David Bowie died and we all went oh my god that's crazy we need to make a flavour and let's try and roll it out for tomorrow in all the states and we went, okay, so they got into the kitchen, they made up the flavour overnight, and then the next day we put on the palette, got to Melbourne, churned it, and it was in the cabinet the next day. There's very few companies that can do that, and it's not about the size, it's how you produce the product. So we produce everything ourselves, so we don't have to wait for anyone. We don't have to order anything. We just literally make it and send it out. So you can be nimble in the way you think, but you also have to be nimble in the way you execute. Yeah. It's interesting. I was listening to a, uh, something the other day and they were talking about how Ben & Jerry's goes about its taste development. I don't know if you are across that or... No. Um, but it, uh, they have a research team or a whole bunch that basically will go around trying to, I guess, understand the modern-day palate and new flavours. Mm. And then um, they end up with about 100 or so they put that in front of the marketing team that cut it back to 60 or so then they put that out to a consumer vote and that's um which for a size company of large scale i guess it's mm. one thing but um uh it's interesting to me how you you pick up on a conversation or something that's happening in day-to-day bowie dying and then can understand that that's going to be a story that resonates with your audience having said that mm. The motivation is very rarely, is it going to, mo- is it going to resonate with our audience? Right. It tends to be, do we give a shit? 
and yes that was important to me I mean you know it can have no we don't really look at we just don't really look at it that way we just go is it interesting for us and would it not offend anyone that would be challenging, I think, for a lot of people to listen to if they are they are either in a marketing capacity in a business or running a business that has a marketing function with a strategy that sits behind it, mm. I think. Because I came in here thinking that you would have... It, it, the, the decisions would be really strategic. Oh, no. Right. Oh, God, no. <clears throat> I mean, we, we probably, as we get bigger, it's probably a little bit more strategic, but mm. on the whole, it's very not. <laughs> Does that, ever, does that scare you at all? Or? No. no. I mean, it's what, it's it's kind of what's got us here today. And mm. to be honest, in five years, ten years, that may change. Um, we might need to be more measured and more specific and more strategic. Mm. But at the moment, we kind of don't need to be. And that's a really nice thing. It's a really nice thing. trying to think of you know just another example sorry of someone else dying I remember when Frankie Knuckles died and for me as someone that came from a music background as a DJ he was very inspirational to me as a as a DJ and a producer and then we made a flavor mm. that was you know to him and I, I didn't go most of the people wouldn't even know who Frankie Knuckles was but for me it was important to do it and I thought it was kind of good fun and in good taste and so we did it yeah not strategic at all. No, it's, yeah. I think, I think um, the strategy comes sometimes when you try things out as well. You know, mm-hmm. I remember the first time we did a flavour for a customer after a suggestion and we named it after her. And that had great ramifications and it, it just perpetuated, you know, we had this conversation on a very down-to-earth level with a customer. It turns out that she loved it and she perpetuated it through her friends and mm-hmm. we got a lot of good feedback because people understood that we were listening to the people that we're also selling product to and mm. I thought that was that was pretty important. It says a lot about I guess authenticity really at the yeah. end of the day and you guys are who you are and you're just doing something that you think is cool. I mean there, there would be people out there looking at what you're doing definitely trying to replicate it whether it be in a like-for-like business or in a, yeah. an environment that's that's not competitive but just thinking trying to trying to I guess capture the essence yeah. of why you guys have been successful and you can see people doing it and not quite having it the authenticity mm. um, and I don't think you you know so you don't need to resonate with anyone but sometimes as you say some people just need to look and go I can sort of see where they're coming from I don't know who Frankie Knuckles is but I can see that it meant something to them does it hold more weight the bigger you get in relation to maybe activities? I mean, we looked at the partnership with Tim Tam, for example, that takes your product from being, I guess, boutique, you would suggest, smaller stores yep. dotted around to being in Woolies. Um, they're, they're, they're almost um, polar opposites. Yeah, they are. They kind of fight each other a little bit. That was a big step for us to do the Tim Tam collaboration mm. um, for that very reason. Yeah. Um, we've built this brand based on, you know, everyone, you know, thinks we're really cool, you know, in a city, whatever, and suddenly there's this collaboration with a brand that's, you know, it's in like 60% of households and it's got a brand penetration of like 99%, you know, mm. there's very few people that don't know what a Tim Tam is. So that was a really big step for us. Um, but... To measure that, for me, it's it was really was there any negative feedback? 
you know, did anyone go, oh, they've sold out, what are they doing? And there really wasn't. It doesn't mean that everyone understood it or liked it, but there wasn't really any negative feedback from it. And I thought that was really good because I, I felt like that meant that they trusted us mm. as a brand and went, okay, well, they're doing Tim Tams. I like Tim Tams. I'll go and try them. I thought it made Tim Tams look good as opposed to you guys. Well, it did. Bad. It definitely did. And that's the research. The, all the, suddenly, once we did that, we got a lot of companies coming out of the woodwork and Woolies and Coles and everyone wanting to do stuff. And the they get all the data, scan data, and they get everyone has all this intel. Yeah. And we do know that Tim Tam got a huge amount of what's the word? I don't know if it's credibility, but the yeah, kudos. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They they definitely did well out of it. And that's why they asked us to do the second year of it. Um, but we got a lot out of it as well. You know, we we were we had a presence for our branding markets where we didn't have a store. You know, states like South Australia, Western Australia, just to see what people thought about us as a brand, even though we didn't have a shop there. So it was always, it was quite intriguing, actually. Mm. Quite interesting to do it. I don't regret it. So we're sitting here in the head office, which explains some of the, the background noise. Um, can you give us a snapshot on the kind of size that you're dealing with now in terms of stores, maybe like head office people, it's yeah. a few people here? Um, stores, I think we're, so it sounds ridiculous, I can't remember, but um, I think we're up to 16. Um, there's about 11, 10 in Sydney, we're about to open another one early next year in Sydney. We've got two in Queensland, three in Melbourne, and we're about to open Canberra as well. Um, China? China, we did a shop in China. We closed it down. Right. Um, we also did a shop in Las Vegas, which we've also closed down. Um, both of them worked okay, but they China was a really bad location and we decided to... We didn't want the pain. Yep. It was, you know shopping center basically and the one in las vegas was just in the wrong place and we didn't really enjoy las vegas either and it was a battle um it was okay but we just we actually went let's pack it up move everything we've got a whole shop we'll pack it up and move it to um la yep and we're in the process of we're quite close to signing a deal with a shop in la right awesome yeah big shop right and there's a strategy for to still expand out in the US or just see how it goes or um yes essentially but it's a big big thing for us um this first uh, place in LA that we're doing is a really big site and the idea is to almost reproduce a small version of this site here in Rosebury which is part production yep. part classroom part shop yeah um we like the idea of I mean the the ice cream and gelato scene in LA is peaking. Is it? Yeah, it's, it's going off, but no one really does what we do. Right. And in order to differentiate ourselves, I think you really need to put it all on display. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's what we do here, and we've taken it to the next level in Australia in that we now have our own dairy farm and hazelnut farm and so forth and supplying our own milk. But in the States, the first step is to go... This is what it looks like when you produce everything yourself from scratch. Yeah. And that's why we're different to everyone else. Mm. And then the rest of the story comes. How deep does that run? So you've, I don't know, Hazelnut Farm, Dairy Farm, I believe you import all of your equipment 
from Italy, is that correct? Yeah, oh, look, we, we don't have a policy of importing all of equipment from Italy. Right. Um, but, you know, we do, it just so happens that our the best looking cabinets are uh, from Italy, so those and the, the, the most of the machinery, like the blast freezers or the churning machines that we, mm. we buy are mostly from Italy, but um, it's because that's what they do, right? Mm. <laughs> um, but we got a, we bought a chocolate uh, ball refiner um, for making our own chocolate. Yeah. Um, that was from Italy as well. We bought a, a big machine that basically makes dulce de leche caramel, and that's all it does, huge thing, so we make that. Um, but um, what was the question? Where did I go with that? Well, just the, that commitment to quality, like yeah. from ground up ingredients. Yeah, we, we are, I mean, yeah, as you know, we bought a dairy farm. It was actually sort of three, two small ones. We now run about 300 head of Jersey cattle. Um, and that stock is building, obviously, as the calves come in. And we have just, in the last uh, couple of weeks, started actually supplying our own milk for our own production, which we were producing milk, but we were on selling it to um, someone else. Okay. Just while we got our feet mm-hmm. up, and we, we pasteurise on the farm now, which very few people, well, no one does, pasteurise the milk directly on the farm and then send it up. Mm-hmm. So we're producing a milk that is in the range of, like we only milk the cows once a day and they're all completely grass pasture fed and it's producing a milk that has about 6% um, fat, which is super high quality. Yeah, it's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, I take it home and feed it to my kids. It's beautiful. It's really yeah. amazing. Speaking of kids, what was your first memory of ice cream? Oh, it's probably the same as most Australians. Things on sticks when we were kids, you know, <laughs> the splices and, and all that sort of stuff. I don't really have a distinct one. Um, but I think growing up was always things on sticks, wasn't it? Did you have the milk truck or the, you know, the, the ice cream truck rolling around? Yeah, the Mr. Whippies. Yeah, Mr. Whippy, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I don't remember going to them a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, I can't remember what my... What was your go-to as a kid? Um, I just splices, I think, were. Yeah. I think. Splices are pretty good. Yeah. They're still really good. Remember yeah. those Sunny Boy things? I know they're not sunny ice cream, boys, but yeah, those... Yeah, they were awesome. I could never get into them. There's something I'm just... Like, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or Monaco bars were really good. Yeah. I think they've come back too, which is yeah. helpful. My wife is, uh, she'll kill me for saying this, but actually addicted, I think, to the chocolate mint oh, shakes downstairs. Yeah, right. Um, so I got over one, I got one at least or whatever. She's got taste. Yeah, they're bloody good. But I came here to get one a couple of weeks ago. I walked in and there were some guys out the front doing some work. Um, a lot of wood out, a lot of tools, building something, obviously. <laughs> and when I had a look around, I noticed one guy was working with his <laughs> tools in the boot of an Audi TT who looked very new. I think there was a it's Range Rover. Anymore, <laughs> Maybe one was a Range Rover. There was a Merc there as well. There were three sounds. or four guys, all with their tools. A bunch of high-quality cars. <laughs> so I thought either you had the most overpaid tradies in the country, or it had to be the directors still hand. No, they're not all the directors actually. Um, right. Well, they, the Danny is is one. Danny is. Um, 
there's two brothers, there's four of us, main four of us, um, Nick and Danny, and Danny is a cabinet maker by trade, and uh, he owns the Audi, because he wants a nice car, because he drives around to all the shops most of the time, he looks after operations, and we kind of roped him into building a lot of stuff recently, which he kind of gave up on a few years ago, but he's been lugging around like a whole... TT load of, <laughs> of power tools. It's not much, is it? And um, yeah, they were building the um, substrate for um, like the carcass for the cabinet that we're putting into our new Canberra store mm. because it was a little bit tricky. And um, as we all do, we go, oh, look, it's going to cost too much to get built. We'll just build it ourselves. And so they were building it themselves. Because the Canberra store, um, between Nick and Danny and Simon, our project manager, we've kind of built the store ourselves. We don't use builders and stuff. Really? Yeah. We oh. do that a lot. And so that's... Do, do I have any in the team would be managing that process? Oh, just Simon and Nick and, and Danny is on the tools. But oh, wow. Yeah. We, we get, you know, you get your trades in, your plumbers and your electricians, but um, most of it is literally all the bits and pieces that you would normally have to get someone to do, we've done ourselves. How much of that is cost-driven versus passion-driven? Oh, do you know what? It's, we're, we're a bit old school. Mm. Like, you know, you, you ask someone to build a cabinet for the thing for the cabinet and they quote you 20 grand and you go, I could build that for two grand. <laughs> and that's where it comes about. Mm. It's mostly like... It's mostly, it's money, but it's not being tight asses going, I can't pay that guy to build that thing for 20 grand when I know I can build it for two. So that's why they were doing that. Mm. <laughs> and you know, you know, you know you're going to get it right as well. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah the TT, they, they went to Bunnings in that the other day and they were driving out and these two tradies, these two Lebanese blokes just looked at them and they... One bloke just turned the other and said, have a look at these blokes. <laughs> what are you doing? And they just laughed at them. It's hilarious. I laughed at them too. Yeah. Just on your mint thing, oh, yeah. your chopped mint. I mean, that's an interesting flavour. Have you tried it? Many times. Yeah. It's my go-to flavour if oh, I'm over an ice cream shop. It's, it's crazy. We have, we have this thing down there. It's called an angel juicer. It's a cold press. I don't know if you know them, but it's, it's a cold press juicer. Right. So it doesn't, you know, just pushes all the juice out. And when we do the chuck bin, some poor sod down there just has to get bucket loads of mint and put them through the juicer <laughs> for, the, for all of the stores, right? Really? So it's a couple of days of just juicing mint leaves, which is... I don't know anyone that would do that. <laughs> what, what kind of volume are you talking like at the moment? I mean, I, I don't. It's hard to say on that. I mean, I can't even remember the numbers anymore. We, I mean, our volume is really high for the mm. for the number of stores that we have. Um, you know, it's it's really high. I, I I can't even give you any numbers on that to be honest. I don't even know what we what we're doing in terms of volume. I mean, we go through probably 9,000 litres of milk a week. Right. I mean, the salted caramel white chocolate is vast, vast numbers that does. So is that the number one? Is that the best yeah, seller? Yeah, by far. Yeah, right. Do you notice the seasonal peak? Uh, we didn't used to. We do now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah quite a lot now. And I think as part of the maturing business, we've definitely noticed... Um, it comes off in winter. I think the worst months that we have are probably April for some reason, and everyone we talk to in hospitality is saying the same thing. It starts to pick up in June. I don't know why. 
but it's definitely it's definitely seasonal now. Um, it used to be this weird thing where we'd go up in summer, it would plateau through winter, and this turnover wouldn't drop, and then we'd go up again, and it's obviously it had to stop somewhere. Yeah. And we're starting to find now that we have, you know, got 10 or 11 stores in Sydney. It's yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, people aren't as scared anymore. Mm. You know, people know that you don't have to line up for five hours. Yeah. You can access it from one store or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think the fear is gone. Yeah, well, as, as someone living in the inner west, thank you for both tram sheds and, and the store at the start. That's handy. Yeah. I want to ask a couple of questions about your background specifically because it's sounds like a hands-on business here and mm. in your LinkedIn profile indicates that you began life as a physio, which would suggest you were good with your hands then. <laughs> and, but then, you know, you've moved through the music industry, uh, mm. amongst other things, to end up here. What's How do you, how do you go from... How do you go? I don't know. I get asked this question quite a bit. I've got no idea. I mean, it was... I did physio because, um, you know, I finished... I went to uni, you know. My father's Chinese, right? So you go to uni, don't you? As soon as you finish... You finish your degree, then you're free. Yeah, right, right? yeah. You can do yeah. whatever you want after that. So I, I did physio, and I was working as a physio, um, and at the same time, I was DJing a lot. And never the twain shall meet. It was a really hard thing to maintain a job where you had to turn up for rounds with the plastic surgeons and the team at seven o'clock on Monday morning, and you'd been DJing all night till you know six, and you know it just didn't work out. So I then went part time, and I ended up quitting. Just but just sort of quit for a little while and just DJ for six months to see what it was like because I was having a lot of fun. Did that for a while, and then suddenly I found myself working in the music game where I was working for Ministry of Sound out here. We set up their office in Australia, me and a guy called Tim McGee, who was the head of it. And um, one thing led to another and I just never went back, you know. I was DJing and then I left Ministry and then I was a promoter with Ben and Paddy. Um, we did um, Sounds on Sunday and we did a big national music festival called We Love Sounds. And It's not, you just fall into it, I think, you know. I just happened to be in that world. Yeah and it was a bit more exciting. Um, and then I fell into this because I had, we used to own a restaurant called Artabula together, me and Nick and Danny. And was that up in Darlinghurst? Like, yeah. yeah, and Eugene, who still owns it, he's actually my, my brother-in-law. And that's how I met Nick. And oh, I just my. sort of put a little bit of money into that restaurant and I met Nick and we used to just talk all the time because Messina was across the road. And yeah. Nick had the one store back then and it was just him. And then his brother came up from, from Adelaide and got involved. And Donnie was our head chef at Otavala, and then he got involved. Yeah, right. And I think I was the last one to come across, but I was always there. We were always talking about it. Mm. And, um, yeah, I just sort of fell into it. So it wasn't, it wasn't pre-planned, that's for sure. What got you into food? Because Justin Newton is how we're in contact. Yeah. And Justin, in when we interviewed him when I interviewed him, sorry, on a different podcast, mentioned that, um, I think it was back in the days of We Love Sounds and, uh, oh, sorry, Sounds on Sunday maybe, um, you guys used to make a habit of going to kind of the Haddon restaurants, yeah. the top restaurants in the state. So there's obviously... <laughs> well, I didn't, he did. He, there was a bunch of them, him and um, right. a bunch of guys, they had this plan that they would hit all the, the Haddon restaurants. But we did as well. I mean, I think, you know, there was a lot of people that went from music a lot of DJs that went into food, strangely. 
um, after they kind of left that world. Mm. And I think, I think you have a, you know, you, you come from that world, it's a little bit hedonistic, it's a little bit indulgent. Um, you, you tend to be bon vivants, you know, you just, you love the good things in life, in, in, you love to overindulge in all, all ways and capacities. And I think food is one of the great loves of people that have that interest. Mm. Um, if you're not out dancing and having a good time, then maybe you're eating and scoffing and making yourself... I also, when I'm talking about this in the context of um, concepts of creativity, end up saying things like, well, I think whether you're a chef or a musician or an artist, what you produce is an expression of your creativity. Mm -hmm. I see creativity as a common link between, yeah. you know, those, those disciplines. Yeah, I think so. I mean... For me, when I came into this, and I think the thing that worked for us all was Donato came over as a very, very good chef, but he didn't have a huge knowledge of the ice cream world, and that's how he became involved with Nick. Nick's background is as a freaky kind of food scientist from a gelato point of view. He was right. very much interested in the science, but not a chef. Right. They came together, and that worked really well. Danny looked after front of house and operations as people person. And when I came in at the same time, I was sort of applying what I knew about building, I hate using the word, those tribes of people from a music point of view mm -hmm. and applying it to a food business that had a, some similarities in some ways, you know. We started using social media very early and we did specials and we changed things up and you could take photos of it. It wasn't wasn't like having to photo photograph one meal in a restaurant that didn't change for four months it was stuff that was changing every day and um, it was kind of exciting and I think that whole me trying to be more creative in the way that we told the story those guys being more creative in the way that they made the product all came together and it kind of worked I guess I remembered that I guess when you when you guys, I guess, started using Instagram or um, I don't know if it was exactly at that time, but we used to reference your businesses in our marketing and hospitality venues yeah. um, just because it was so engaging. You know, yeah. As you said, you could have photos going up of totally different products in pretty quick succession. Yeah. Um, we so still kept it super fresh. Yeah, and we still try and do that. You know, I think content, it's changed. You know, it used to be just a photo. Mm. And even when we first started, there was no, we didn't even have photos. We just we talk about the specials and have funny captions and that sort of stuff and then it became photos and now it's all about video and making sure that your content is high quality but not too over the top and not too overproduced sometimes. Mm. Um, but we're really lucky that we've got a product and as we were saying before, the way that we produce, we're nimble enough that we can change things up really quickly so we've always got something to talk about. Whereas if you're a gelato company that is a franchise and you buy your flavours from this new yep. company that supplies you with the mix and the base and all that sort of stuff. You got to wait for that guy to come up with a new yeah. flavour, and then you can post about it. Um, whereas for us, we can just do it all the time. How, what, what, how do you get from the idea to the product? Is that a, a roundtable discussion, or is it someone shoots a text message and yep. says, "Hey, so and so just died. Let's make an ice cream." Yeah, it, it would be self-indulgent. In some ways, I'd, I'd love to just do. I'd love to show everyone how. Non-organised, <laughs> yeah. like, just be so interesting. Like, it just like if we had an idea, we just come in the morning and I, you know, 
the David Bowie thing is a really good example. Like everyone knew it, of course, but we, I just said we should do something, and Donnie said, "Yeah, we'll do this, and we'll I'll try and make it." And he's you know in the kitchen and he formulates the recipe, gets it made. Someone else is on the phone about transport and freight, and it just happens. Um, it, look, the, it gets done in various ways. It can come from the kitchen, it can come from outside the kitchen, and then they produce something that the marketing or branding team want to do. Or it can come from their side and they produce something and say, what about this? And we go, yeah, great, we could do something with that. It's just, but it's very, very quick. So there's no hierarchy to say, like, this is what you do. It's pretty... God, loose is the wrong word, but... It's loose. Okay, that's yeah, it's loose. It's, it's not loose in the way that we do it, but the process... Um, can be quite loose in terms of the creativity part of it, mm. but there's not really many rules. It's good. Your approach in being, well, I guess some would describe it as nimble, that gets used a lot with uh, what you guys do and what the craft brewing guys do. Like you can see that all those unique brews that they come up with, tell the story or allow something else to come out. Mm. Have you got any collaborations uh, line up? I guess collaborations are an interesting thing to talk about. Mm. Um, how you go about identifying them, um, anything that you thought worked well in the past or would look to do again? Or Yeah, we, I mean, we don't just pick collaborations because they're immediately, obviously cool if you know what I mean. We don't go, oh, there's a... I mean, craft brewing is a really good example, you know. We, we've been asked a million times to do stuff. But beer-flavoured gelato tastes like shit. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so you don't do it, right? Um, but how many goes did it take you to work that out? <laughs> <laughs> a few. Um, but we've, we do collaborations often with people just because we think they're an interesting company or we think that their concept is interesting. Um, I've talked about this before, but we did a collaboration with Airwick once and it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and the reaction that you just gave then when I said that was the reaction that I had when they first approached me. In fact, I just said, I can't meet with you. There's no point. We're not going to do it. And the company just begged us and said, please just let hear us out, right? And I did, and I sat down, and they, they had a concept in mind that was about these four sort of smells or flavours that they wanted to create stuff around, but they kind of gave us carte blanche on how we went about. They wanted a sensory experience, so they said, we want to produce flavours or an experience where it demonstrates how this scent changes in the air, right? And we got to work with a food technologist. We got to do some really cool stuff. And we came up with these really cool concepts that pushed the boundaries of what it was to taste and eat food. Yeah. And so that was enough for me to say, yeah, let's do this. I, don't, I didn't care that it was Airwick. For me, I quite liked the idea of people going, what, mm. Airwick? Like, what are you doing? And so I think they're interesting challenges. And we've done stuff with more obvious collaborations. I mean, the Tim Tam chocolate thing makes right. sense. Um, but we, we always judge it on on the merit of the of the thing that's put before us um, and not just based on whether they're cool or not cool. Yeah. How important are the less formal collaborations, like, again, 
I live around the corner, so I can't help it when you see when you're doing a pig on a spit or oh, a restaurant yeah. out in the car. The mosquito eats things. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they would have to tie your brand back, I guess, to other cool food and beverages. Yeah, see, but they're a really good example as well in that, so those things are basically, I always wanted to do food in the car park. I live locally as well, right? Yeah. So. And then it just turned into this thing where we thought, oh, we'll do something with someone and we got Huxterberger from Melbourne to come up and then it just exploded into this thing where we just didn't think it was ever going to be that big. And mm. I just wanted to do stuff with mostly brands that weren't in Sydney. So most of the guys that we've used are all from Melbourne. We're about to do one with Mr Miyagi yep. coming up in August. And um, again, I love that we put out this content and information about an event and the type of food that has nothing to do with gelato mm. and you see on our page our facebook page or instagram page you know a video of a pig on a you know, on a spit or us making burgers and it makes no sense whatsoever but what it does do is that we're saying we love really good food mm. these guys make great food and we're going to put on a bit of a party and make food and we always make a dessert that matches what the food is you know so when we did hoi panai we do filipino desserts and the filipino community love it and i just i really love pushing the boundaries of what we do i mean we're like i said you see the content doesn't make any sense at all mm. but it does it, it it indicates what we stand for. Well, that's the, I think there are a lot of people running or managed brands, own brands, who that's that's kind of the dream, isn't it? Like you kind of aligning yourself with someone's lifestyle as opposed to yeah. just their love of gelato, so you can transcend. You you want to push the you want to push the boundaries of what what the brand means to people as well, you know. And and it's a good tester to see mm. if if what you think is is true you know do, do people trust us do people trust us as a food brand do people trust us as someone that can say to you you should eat this burger because we think it's really good and most of the time it's, it's at the moment it's working out well the lines are astronomical yeah, to the crazy. two that i've been into here are there any that have flopped have you learned any lessons from any of those <laughs> just gone, that was the wrong no business. look there's there's been there's been one that wasn't as busy as the rest right but wouldn't have called it a flop okay. the others are really crazy and this one just didn't have huge lines so i mean yeah it's it's good i mean we we're trying to push like i said we're trying to push the boundaries of food i mean we see ourselves as a as a in some ways a food business i mean we're starting to make our own chocolate we, you know, we make all of our own chocolate and our gelato and that will diversify into chocolate products. We started making our own version of a Nutella, um, which is amazing. We've made our own dulce de leche, which is an Argentinian caramel. And you can't buy Argentinian dulce de leche here. You can't import it. Um, it's against the law because of dairy rules. Right. You can buy Spanish dulce de leche and all sorts of other, but not Argentinian. So we decided that we were going to make it ourselves we Nick and Simone another partner went to Argentina Argentina um, got the right machinery and then got this guy out that showed us how to make it properly and now we've sort of I think come close to mastering the dulce de leche to the point where Argentinians and South Americans who eat it here are, some of them are crying because it's that good <laughs> yeah, right. yeah absolutely amazing we've had some amazing emails from people so for us, it's about 
making other products as well as best we can, making the best chocolate we can, making the best dulce de leche we can. I don't know where that's going to go. I think the core of our business is still gelato, but be interesting to see how far we can push the food thing. So you uh, wouldn't rule out kind of retail lines in? Yep. Right. We're, we're already working on some at yeah, the moment. Cool. Yeah, some some interesting some interesting stuff that's not ice cream, but related to it. Yeah. And when you look around, if you the way you think about your business, which is interesting to hear hear its direction. But when you look around, is there other things that are inspiring you from in, in the food, food industry? Yeah, specifically. I mean, I think like everyone, you know, the people that are really, you know, we ate at Fyador the other night and um, Donato has become pretty friendly with Lennox there and we have been talking to him, I don't know if you've eaten there, but, you know, they everything's cooked over fire. Yeah, yeah. And Lennox, if you're listening, I want my Tupperware container back. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, we were overwhelmed. If, you know, you go in there and you, you forget that it's all cooked over fire, but the food was incredible and it's a very difficult process. But we've been talking to him. I haven't been, but Donnie's been talking to him about when, when in, with dairy cows, when you have bobbies, the males, generally they're killed straight away as soon as they're born and you just keep the girls for milking. Um, and the reason that farmers do that is because they have to keep their costs down, so to feed an extra cow yep. it's pointless. For us, we don't have to worry too much about that, so we've we've started, we keep them and we're going to rear them, and there's been this, um, I don't know about resurgence, but a very strong interest in eating um, dairy cattle yeah. as meat. Yeah, um, in Europe, and it's yeah. become this thing. Yeah. So we've been keeping and rearing the bobbies. Um, uh, they're all grass-fed and so forth. And at some stage, they're going to be ready for someone like Lennox, yeah, yeah to yeah. give them a try. And we're really interested in that mm. process and seeing what you. I mean, just just more interesting ways about how you use your food, where your food comes from. I mean, everyone's really talking about it. Mm. And in the end, we want to do, you know, we, we rear our dairy cattle on grass and loose and we don't feed them grain. Mm. You know, they're about as happy as a dairy cow can be. Um, and we milk them once a day and it's already showing that we're producing a much better quality, quality milk. milk. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, so I think people like that who have just gone, this is what I do. I'm going to cook everything on fire. <laughs> yeah. I think he's super interesting. I mean, you can cook on fire and that's great. But if your food's not amazing, no one cares where it's cooked on fire. Or not. Yeah. The fact that you go in there and the food's amazing and you go, hang on, they just, there's not one gas oven in there, I think is pretty cool. And if I remember rightly, didn't they have old milkers in terms of the meat? I think that on the menu, so they're yeah. using, you know, yeah. and cows. That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, right. So the bobbies and the old milkers. I think, and I could be talking about this is not my area, but um, I understand that the milkers, the fat on the milkers has always been a bit yellow. It's not as white. Right. And so I think in the past, it's been, it's been seen shunned. as a, yeah. yeah. Um, 
But I think what people are realising is there's no such thing as a bad cut of meat. It's how you eat it. It's how you prepare it yeah. and how you cook it that matters. I mean, we were at Fyodor the other night and he served a piece of chuck steak that for me is you put chuck in a stew and you, you mm, smash it yeah. for like five hours. Yeah. And he cooked, he cooked it. It was rare and it was beautiful and mm. tender. And I was like, what, what's going on here? I don't understand. So people like that, I think that are doing something that everyone else is doing but they're doing it in a completely different way and achieving really good results I think are really interesting yeah and that's what we try to do yeah you know we're always trying to do things better um and hope you've got to hope that the th- by doing things better even though it's usually more expensive and more labor intensive that the at the end it doesn't matter whether people are talking about it or not as long as the product is really really good and people taste it and go that's incredible it's like the chopped mint thing right mm-hmm. maybe people don't even know that we mince and crush that mint you know for two days but when you taste it it's completely different to anything else you have anywhere else yeah 100%. and whether you like it or you don't like it is is up to that individual but in the end it's, in the end it's different and it's you know we're quite proud of that so i'm gonna ask one more question before we get on to the last round mm-hmm. um I know you have mentioned that there's no strategy per se in terms of the marketing, but in terms of the wider business, is there a, a goal? Is this, you know, if you were to fast forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years, like is there an, uh, uh, no, uh, there's nothing that you're, <laughs> right, okay. Um, you know, a lot of businesses, we, we don't have an end game of, you know, selling yep. to, you know, we, we're not setting it up to you know, sell to a Unilever or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, who knows, we might. We, we certainly don't run our business like that. Um, we sort of talk about, you know, Danny, one of the partners, his two sons, are, um, one's 16, 17, and the other one is 20, 21, and they both work here full-time. Ale um, makes all the dulce de leche and runs... He's, He's worked for me for a year in marketing and um, now works in the factory and he's getting his head around the entire business. So in some ways, we are building a business that our kids could work in. You know, I've got two boys, Danny's got two boys, Nick's got two boys. Yeah, right. So it could be something they go into. And I think if we build a business that has that philosophy, then even if we do end up selling it or selling part of it I still think you're setting up the right kind of business for people to buy I think yeah yeah it's a business based on good fundamentals by the sounds of things yeah yeah um making the best thing that we best product we can make doing it in the right way yeah we don't have this list of core values but all that stuff exists you know being respectful to our customers and to the people that work for us and all that Mm. sort of stuff so um but no there is no grand plan much, much to the um, distaste of all the private equity guys that float around us. Beautiful friend. This is the end. My only friend. The end of our So um, we've got a standaway that we'd like to ask a few questions to end the podcast so um, we'll throw them out 
pretty rapid fire, but feel free to indulge. So, favourite artist or album? <sighs> I mean, I'm a deep house house music boffin, to be honest. Um, I have been listening a lot to the back catalogue of Plastic City, which no one will probably know, and artists like Time Rider um, and Terry Lee Brown Jr., who I just love, and listening to the back catalogue of all their stuff from you know 20 years ago and just thinking to myself how current it is and yeah right it's so awesome and you know there's so much music out there and all this stuff gets left behind but it's still fantastic i'm gonna can i throw one question really quickly because you would have been to a million different shows either that you toured yourself or you just went to what was the best one you ever went to <laughs> look i think things that really change your world in dance music are, are really other things you remember and I will never forget the first time I saw Danny, T- Danny Tanaglia play. I'll never forget the first time I saw Mark Farina play who yeah. inspired me as a, as a DJ and I just couldn't get my head around what those guys were doing. Um, but it probably had to do with time and place as well. Yeah. You know, it was at a time where, you know, the music scene was everything to me and I was having a great time. Um, so, yeah. Do you, do you DJ DJ now? I uh, no, I would say no. I've DJed twice recently, and it was really great. I stopped for ages when I had my kids, and this place was cranking. Yeah. But um, I got asked to play a couple of times recently, and it was it was really good. Realised oh, well. that I missed it. <laughs> Could be a request coming your way soon. <laughs> Book or podcast that you recommend? Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I think the last thing I listened to was. Um, is an English comedian. His name is Adam Buxton, and he's really good mates with Louis Thoreau. Oh yeah. And he does a podcast, and he's done a couple where the two of them just sit down and kind of shoot the breeze. And it's it's very. I just love. It's just a couple of mates sitting down and just talking. It's like no one else is there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're just hilarious. They're just so funny. They're very. Um, how can I put it? They obviously went to private schools. And they're, you know, upper middle class. I think Louis Thoreau's dad was a was a very well known author or something as well. They're very well educated, but they're not toffee at all. You know, they're yeah. just they're just funny, you know, funny lads. That was good. A yeah, good one. Uh, favorite drink right now? I'm not a massive drinker, but probably Negronis. I'm a bit of a sucker for Negronis. Nothing wrong with those. And uh, or favorite venue? Venue as in food. Eating, drinking, um, to go. I th- to be honest, and I know everyone will probably say this, but the guys that did um, Hubert's, the Swill Group guys, oh yeah, Toby and Jason and that lot. I mean, that venue is just to have the foresight to go into that. I don't know if you guys saw it beforehand, but it was a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, I do recall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to go in there, it seems like it, it seems easy. Now. If you went in there now and go, oh, of course. But to go into that place and go, oh, I'm going to turn this into, you know, it's almost like a French. Speakies, I don't even know how to describe it. But yeah, that well, yeah, it was awesome. It's a ticket to somewhere else almost. I think that's what they do really well. They totally. they transport you somewhere else. Yeah, that spiral staircase. Yeah, you know, all those little tiny little bottles. Yeah, Jason's over in New York. Um, yeah. about to do another venue over there. Yeah. so look forward to. Yeah, he's just moved their family, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, seeing on that. And uh, and lastly, the biggest inspiration to you. It's a tough one. I don't really have one. Does that sound bad? No. 
Um, there's been little, you know, people like in my music world that, you know, DJs that I thought push the boundaries, people have pushed the boundaries. So I just like anyone that's interesting and, and doesn't do stuff, doesn't follow in anyone else's path. It's hard to name them at the moment, but, you know, a Mark Farina or Danny Tanaglia, those guys, from a music point of view, were just doing stuff that no one else was doing. Mm. And I found quite interesting. Big inspiration. I should say my wife. <laughs> I think you just did. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome. Well, mate, thank you very, very much for your time. It's really good to chat and learn more about the business in yourself, of course. So, Thanks. Yeah, it's really good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, mate, what did you think of that chat with Declan? I thought that was really, really quite fascinating. Yeah. In particular, the, uh, I guess a couple of points for me. One was... Uh, as an outsider looking in, you try and think through how people are making their decisions and mm. um, the fact that there was no massive grand plan and I think that, that there's a huge amount of intuition in that group yeah. of individuals. Um, but beyond that, uh, and the other aspect is how quickly they could take that intuition, say for example with the Bowie thing, yeah. and turn it into an ice cream in a day, in another state. Yeah. Uh, which can only speak to the trust and relationships that exist between those key people mm. on the one hand, so there's no over-analyzing or over-discussion about a decision. Yeah. And then obviously, as Declan said, the ability for them to produce to actually the fiscal production side. What about you? Uh, mate, very, very similar. I mean, my perspective, and I think I said it on the actual recording, was that a business like that would be really structured and would have pretty clear um, strategy in place because they've grown so quickly. I think it's, it's, it's hard to imagine a business growing that quickly without any strategy in place because that kind of growth organically is kind of hard to imagine. Um, I really like the fact that they can create a product and get it out that quickly and the authenticity around their brand is impressive. I think, um, again, I think I said it during the interview, but there would be businesses out there who were trying to replicate that way of thinking and just totally failing. And I think I've tried to do that before in businesses that I've worked in from a marketing perspective. You admire what someone else is doing and then you try to replicate it, but you always, it's the old thing of if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going, I yeah. think. Yeah. You, know, you don't know where you've been, it's hard to know where you're going. And you see when people acquire businesses, they try to keep it going on in the same model or the same fashion, but they don't understand what really makes it special. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, an ingredient that's not left put on the list is correct something else yeah and then the fact that they came from restaurants i think is is interesting as well i didn't actually know that going in that they were they they part owners in a tabla and that's how they all sort of came together just through the one shop like that's it's pretty interesting that two people working on opposite sides of the street have combined to make a business that is you know as successful and as popular as that one kind of like you and me speaking of <laughs> um, um next week we've got uh patty Conlon yeah coming on the show yeah do you know Paddy, much about him? I know a little bit about him. I think I've met him once or twice, but um, obviously being in the hospitality industry, I've known of him, heard of him, um, but my knowledge of his background is pretty pretty thin. Well, well, I'm sure we'll cover it out. I do think he is one of the guys that has just flown under the radar. He has been, yeah. I think, at the cutting edge of so many things in the city for the last 10 years. Uh, and um, without giving the game away, I think that he's another one of these people that has transcended more than one discipline. Like he works quite heavily yeah. in the music space and the art space as well as 
in FFB. So we've got that to look forward to next week. Yeah, nice, mate. Uh, yeah, can't wait.